This is WNXS News with your anchors, Kit Harding, Jake E, ISO on Esports, and Diz on Product Forecast. Welcome to WNXS News. I'm Jake E. And I'm Kit Harding. Thank you for joining us. Our top story? More developments to the competitive magic scene have come to light, and the reception has been less than stellar. The most recent announcement from Wizards of the Coast involves a sizable cut to the World Championship prize pool. In an article from August of 2019, the prize pool for World Championship 27, which was canceled last year due to the COVID-19 outbreak, was announced at $1 million. However, an announcement was made on June 17th that it would be cut to only a quarter of this amount, sparking outrage from many corners. Pros all over Twitter mentioned that they had expected the prize pool for World Championship 27 to be cut due to recent announcements regarding the shift in focus on Pro Magic. Andre Strasky called the prize cut expected but sad, saying that he has no motivation to prepare for the event now. He wasn't the only one. Rivals League member Austin Bursevich has long been openly critical of the flaws in the current MPL system and has continued to be critical now. His comment, as well as one from Gabriel Nassif, referred to this being the latest in a series of prize cuts since the beginning of the pandemic. Wizards has been eager to boast about Magic's record-breaking year, which raises questions about the necessity of this cut. And not to sound like a broken record, but pros just cannot seem to catch a break over this last year. I am going to ignore that pun. But you're not wrong. First, multiple tournaments are pulled out from under them, and then Wizards pulls the entire pro system. Then this happens, everyone feels lied to, and the community isn't inclined to get Wizards slack. That's right, especially this late in the tournament cycle. Many players have been working towards what they were told was a million-dollar prize pool, only to find out that it will be much, much lower. Some members of the community have even asked if the players who've been competing for spots have grounds for a lawsuit. Like we've never heard of that before. Promissory estoppel is everywhere, lurking in the mana vortex, waiting to claim its due. And it's brought by a demonic attorney. Exactly! Except this time it's staying in the mana vortex, because the Wizards Prize policy has a provision stating, quote, Wizards of the Coast LLC reserves the right, in its sole discretion, to modify all prize or award structures and to substitute any prize or award for another prize or award in its sole discretion, end quote. It's also worth noting that Wizards has not officially acknowledged this as being a change. They simply phrased the announcement as though the prize pool has always been $250,000. And what makes it worse for a lot of the competitors is the timing of another announcement. Seven new secret lairs were announced as part of the all-natural refreshing super drop and the focus from all of the public-facing Wizards accounts was on these instead of the championship announcement. 
This caused many players to feel like Watsi was trying to bury the prize change among new product announcements. In fact, the only outright mention of the new prize total was as a part of the 2020-2021 postseason article on the Magic Esports page. Strangely enough, however, despite all of these announcements from Wizards, not all pro players blamed the company for the downfall of the pro and rivals leagues. One well-known figure in the Magic community caused a stir when he decided to blame... Commander players? That can't be right. Uh, No, it's... it's right. Well, then. Yes, but as strange as that sounds, he functionally said that the casual community, being willing to buy cards for formats like Commander, is responsible for Wizards no longer caring about competitive magic. Well, that's certainly a reality twist. That's what pretty much everyone who saw it said. This player later said it should have been obvious that it was just a joke, but it still got enough negative attention that he later deleted the tweet. This wasn't the only negative opinion he's directed towards the magic community lately, calling judges whiny and clickish, especially in response to his alleged joke about the EDH format. Not the greatest week for him in regards to public perception, huh? Bit heavy on the illusions of grandeur. Are you planning on doing this the entire episode? Doing what? And you and Diz and Iso complained about my puns. That brings us to our next topic, someone with great public perception. Titus Lunder is one of the most prolific recent magic artists in the game. He was kind enough to sit with us and talk about his artwork and the diversity and challenges that come with it. I'm here with Titus Lunter, a very prolific magic artist. Thank you, Titus, for joining us. Uh, You're very welcome. Good to be here. Glad to be here. (laughs) Titus, could you give us a just quick brief introduction to who you are and what you do as an artist? So I am a concept artist and illustrator for the um, entertainment industry. So video games, tabletop games, that kind of stuff. And I've been doing that since about 2009. And as a concept artist, my main responsibilities are uh, building worlds before they kind of go to, you know, the the rest of the team for the final product. So there'll be uh, basically I'm the problem solver and translator from text ideas into the visual ideas for people to build them. Um, and as an illustrator, I um, I make cool paintings for all kinds of products like uh, Magic Gathering and, uh, and D&D. I guess that's why we're here. Well, Magic is why we're here, right? <laughs> I mean, yes. Um, speaking of Magic, uh, you've been doing it for a few years now. You've been working as one of their artists. Urza Saga. Let's just talk about it. Um, yeah. You, it's It's been making <laughs> waves ever since it was revealed for any number of reasons, absolutely not the least of which is Mm. your artwork on that card. Um, It's very clearly different than anything else you've done for magic so far. Mm. Um, Can you, can you talk a little about your approach when you were coming up with this card design? I think, yeah. So first off, I, I got this design from, uh, or this brief from an art director that I know really well. And I got to know Cynthia, who gave me this this assignment through the concept pushes I used to do on site at Watsi. And one of the things that 
makes me both a good and a bad concept designer is because I am super interested in all the nitty gritty of how stuff is supposed to work. Um, well, there's basically two schools of thought with, with concept art. One is the rule of cool. Basically, you do whatever looks cool and you don't really mind too much about the functionality. And the other is a more left brain approach where you really care about the functionality and you let that inform your designs. Now, when you're working on magical worlds, getting bogged down in functionality can really hamstring you, right? Because it can really eliminate a whole mm-hmm. bunch of possibilities. But when you work on really technical briefs like like this one, uh, it can help out a lot because this is supposed to be a palimpsest, which I had to Google. I had no idea what a palimpsest was. It's just like a bivouac, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I had no idea what a bivouac was. <laughs> um, so, but a palimpsest is basically when you recycle the same same page, your same paper multiple times and you kind of just erase over it or you, you peel a top layer off. So you get a, a bit of a fresher page. And, and this happened three times. So in order for that illustration to work, you had to get into the mindset of three different people and three different stages of magic history. Uh, so it meant looking up each different timeline, what it meant, what it represented, and then kind of getting into character because this was not made by artists. Um, Kaya wasn't an artist. Urza was an artist. Baron was definitely not like an, an artist. Mm-hmm. So how how would they how would they react right would they have a flair for the ornamental well kaya would because it's a love poem that she's writing uh, urza would be more kind of like manic and scribbly and trying to find out you know these equations to fight off the frictions and creating these these horrific weapons in the meantime and baron he's kind of you know creating an account and almost a false narrative about urza where he omits the parts that are wildly dangerous that, that show the very much destructive side of Urza. And he tries to highlight Urza as this benevolent inventor, right? Who, who, who saved them all from, from certain doom, even though he himself was close to, to creating that doom. So you have all these layers and you can't just approach that from a point of view of, you know, oh, a tree looks like a tree. You've got to figure out which kind of tree it is. This is, this is a radically different kind of, um, way of approaching illustration. So I think I was the perfect person, at least from my point of view, not, not to come off arrogant to, to do that because I was terrible. I am terrible at drawing characters and it featured a Urza really prominently. So you, you had a double whammy, right? It was almost as if a non-artist was drawing that character. So that was, that was a bit of a freebie. Um, and I love figuring out uh, puzzles like, like that. So they really, they really played into uh, my strengths and weaknesses simultaneously, which I thought was was kind of a <laughs> kind of a cool thing uh, for for them to do. Normally, when I get assigned characters, um, I'm not too happy because it takes me a lot longer to get them to look passable. And here was um, not a problem if it looked like shit because it, it, it's not supposed to look like a you know this beautiful character artist had drawn it. So yeah, um, that was that's kind of like the 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 origin of, of where Urza Saga came from. When you were going through that process, was it refreshing for you to try something this different from your normal artwork or was it kind of a struggle for you to have to fight past your normal flow? I think it was a, it was a mixture. One thing that I really, really enjoyed was when it came in and it said it was a palimpsest. I was like, I have to do this traditionally. And I, I'd been wanting to do more traditional magic pieces for a long time because 
not because of the, the the market for them being really really good, which is obviously you know an incentive to do that, but because when you work traditionally, you have a much different connection with your with your artwork. It's much closer uh, kind of connection, which. Um, can be very important. If you work as a production artist, sometimes the work that you do can feel very repetitive and you can, you know, there's certain pitfalls there where you use the same gimmicks over and over again. So you, you try to diversify as much as possible. But with the assignments that I usually get looking at, um, like Silver Quill Campus, for example, that's an incredibly complicated illustration. And I could never paint that in, in oils that would just take forever um, to do, you know, with the drying times and, you know, the subtle color layerings would be a nightmare. But with something like Urza Saga, I immediately knew that it had to be done traditional to get that traditional feel because it is, you know, scrubbed paper. So I, I immediately went to do that. And I experimented with uh, tea staining and coffee staining to get the aged look with um, different grains of paper, with sanding the paper, you know, which type of inks can I reliably use which can i destroy you know what looks like faded ink or can i make real ink look faded and it was just this it, it added this whole new dimension to to illustrating and painting that that i was really looking for but hadn't had the excuse to actually do because our our turnover times are really short and normally we work on two or three commissions at the same time so um you know, you don't you don't necessarily have a lot of time to to oil paint everything, at least not with the, with the type of work I do. So, being able to shoehorn it in um, this way, while almost being forced to do that, was was a really nice really nice break. It was a good excuse for me to do that. Urza Saga, let's just talk about it. Um, yeah. You, it's it's been making <laughs> waves ever since it was revealed for any number of reasons. Absolutely not the least of which is mm. your artwork on that card. Um, it's very clearly different than anything else you've done for magic so far. Mm. Um, can you, can you talk a little about your approach when you were coming up with this car design? I think, yeah. So first off, I, I got this design from, uh, or this brief from an art director that I know really well. And I got to know Cynthia who gave me this, this assignment through the concept pushes I used to do on site at Watsi. And one of the things that makes me both a good and a bad concept designer is because I am super interested in all the nitty gritty of how stuff is supposed to work. Um, well, th there's basically two schools of thought with, with concept art. One is the rule of cool. Basically you do whatever looks cool and you don't really mind too much about the functionality. And the other is a more left brain approach where you really care about the functionality and you let that inform your designs. Now, when you're working on magical worlds, getting bogged down in functionality can really hamstring you, right? Cause it can really eliminate a whole mm -hmm. bunch of possibilities. But when you work on really technical briefs like, like this one, uh, it can help out a lot because this is supposed to be a palimpsest, which I had to Google. I had no idea what a palimpsest was. It's just like a bivouac, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, I had no idea what a bivouac was. <laughs> um, so, but a palimpsest is basically when you recycle the same same page, your same paper multiple times, and you kind of just erase over it or you, you peel a top layer off. So you get a, a bit of a fresher page. And, and this happened three times. So in order for that illustration to work, you had to get into the mindset of three different people and three different stages of magic history. 
so it meant looking up each different timeline, what it meant, what it represented, and then kind of getting into character because this was not made by artists. Um, Kaya wasn't an artist. Urza was an artist. Baron was definitely not like an, an artist. Mm-hmm. So how how would they how would they react? Right? Would they have a flair for the ornamental? Well, Kaya would because it's a love poem that she's writing. Uh, Urza would be more kind of like manic and scribbly and trying to find out, you know, these equations to fight off the frictions and creating these, these horrific weapons in the meantime. And Baron, he's kind of, you know, creating an account and almost a false narrative about Urza where he omits the parts that are wildly dangerous that, that show the very much destructive side of Urza. And he tries to highlight Urza as this, benevolent inventor right who 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 saved them all from from certain doom even though he himself was close to to creating that doom so you have all these layers and you can't just approach that from a point of view of you know a a tree looks like a tree you got to figure out which kind of tree it is this is this is a radically different kind of um, way of approaching illustration so i think i was the perfect person at least from my point of view, not not to come off arrogant, to, to do that because I was terrible, I am terrible at drawing characters. And it featured a Urza really prominently. So you, you had a double whammy, right? It was almost as if a non-artist was drawing that character. So that was that was a bit of a freebie. Um, and I love figuring out uh, puzzles like, like that. So they really they really played into uh, my strengths and weaknesses simultaneously, which I thought was was kind of a kind of a cool thing uh, for for them to do. Normally, when I get assigned characters, um, I'm not too happy because it takes me a lot longer to get them to look passable. And here was um, not a problem if it looked like shit because it, it's not supposed to look like a you know this beautiful character artist had drawn it. So yeah, that um, was that's kind of like the 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 origin of, of where Urza Saga came from. When you were going through that process, was it refreshing for you to try something this different from your normal artwork or was it kind of a struggle for you to have to fight past your normal flow? I think it was a, it was a mixture. One thing that I really, really enjoyed was when it came in and it said it was a palimpsest. I was like, I have to do this traditionally. And I, I'd been wanting to do more traditional magic pieces for a long time because not because of the, the, the market for them being really, really good, which is obviously, you know, an incentive to do that. But because when you work traditionally, you have a much different connection with your, with your artwork. It's much closer uh, kind of connection, which um, can be very important. If you work as a production artist, sometimes the work that you do can feel very repetitive and you can, you know, there's certain pitfalls there where you use the same gimmicks over and over again. So you, you try to diversify as much as possible, but with the assignments that I usually get looking at um, like silver quill campus, for example, that's an incredibly complicated illustration. And I could never paint that in, in oils that would just take forever um, to do, you know, with the drying times and, you know, the subtle color layerings would be a nightmare. But with something like Urza Saga, I immediately knew that it had to be done traditional to get that traditional feel because it is, you know, scrubbed paper. So I I immediately went to do that. And I experimented with uh, tea staining and coffee staining to get the aged look with um, different grains of paper, with sanding the paper, you know, which type of inks can I reliably use which can i destroy 
you know, what, what looks like faded ink or can I make real ink look faded? And it was just this, it, it added this whole new dimension to, to illustrating and painting that, that I was really looking for, but hadn't had the excuse to actually do because our, our turnover times are really short. And normally we work on two or three commissions at the same time. So, um, you know, you don't, you don't necessarily have a lot of time to, to oil paint everything, at least not with the, with the type of work I do. So being able to shoehorn it in um, this way while almost being forced to do that was, was a really nice, really nice break. It was a good excuse for me to do that. The full interview can be found at mtgnexus.com. We mentioned them earlier, but we'll talk more about the new secret lair drop after this commercial break. Hi, Janky here on behalf of mtgnexus.com. Are you looking for a site to talk about the latest magic news? Find new brews to take your decks to the next level. Talk about the latest topics? Ask people's advice. Listen to great interviews? Or just hang out? Have I got the website for you? mtgnexus.com has all this and more. You can even see us go head-to-head at twitch.tv slash mtgnexus and talk to us about the game. mtgnexus.com I'll see you there. seven new secret lairs in this drop and we saw a new card from an, the upcoming Forgotten Realms set so Diz will tell us all about it Diz? Thank you Kit, we'll dive right into the new Forgotten Realms card and let me tell you it had players laughing with joy Tasha's hideous laughter another famous Dungeons and Dragons spell in card form costs one blue blue and mills a player until they mill 20 mana value worth of cards. As for the all-natural, totally refreshing super drop, hold on to your hats. First up is the Saturday morning D&D layer, six cards with art drawn in Saturday morning cartoon style. We finally see the Phyresian Praetors, complete edition, featuring all five of the original Praetors printed in all Phyresian text. Next up are two guest artists, the first of whom is award-winning comic book artist Fiona Staples. She was brought on to draw five iconic spells in her unique comic book style, and she wasn't the only one. 
Jen Bartell is another comic book artist brought on to show off her skills in a way we don't usually see in magic cards. Which artist did they do a callback set for? There were three Legends of the Games artwork brought back for this super drop. Mark Poole was featured with some old and new art, including artwork not yet seen in Modern Borders. Dan Fraser returned with two layers, each featuring five of the Ravnica and Guild signets in Old Border artwork. Last but not least, Rebecca Gay made her long-awaited return with the Mother's Day drop. Yes, it was a month ago, but that's what they're calling it. Features four original artworks for Mother of Ruins. That looks really exciting. What's your preferred selection? Oh, you know me, Kit. I prefer the Phyresians all the way. Yeah, that one seems pretty neat. Thanks, Diz. It's been a busy week. That's what happens when the Mana Vortex is lurking, watching, waiting for disturbances. I... I'm confused, but I honestly don't want to know. Our next story... We now have new info for the 2020-2021 postseason events, other than the World Championship prizes. Iso, what did we learn? Well, kid, we learned quite a bit. First up, we learned that the 2021 Champion Showcase will take place June 26th using rounds of Modern Horizons 2 Draft, followed by three rounds of Modern Constructed. This will hold eight champions from various Magic Online Championship events, ranging from Vintage all the way to Standard. In addition, we learned how more players will qualify for the World Championship. The first event to battle for four spots is the Challenger Gauntlet, held August 6th to 8th. It hosts the best non-league players from the Zendikar Rising, Kaldheim, and Strixhaven Championships in a last-ditch effort to qualify. Then, September 2nd to 5th holds the MPL and Rivals Gauntlets. Each of these are 24-player events that will allow players into the World Championship, four from the Rivals Gauntlet and three from the MPL Gauntlet. The remaining players will get a chance to join either the Rivals League or the MPL League for the 2021-2022 to seasons. The World Championship itself has been set for October 8th to 10th and already has four players who have clinched spots. Defending champion Paolo Vitor Damadorosa, Andrei Sadreski, Ila Krasis, and Stanislav Sivka. So far, we only know the formats for the Rivals and MPL Gauntlets, which will be a mix of Historic and Standard, but we'll be sure to keep you up to date as information develops. Jenk? Thanks, Izo. Our final story involves the Magic content creation community. There were several milestones over the last two weeks which deserve recognition. First up, the Command Zone hit their 400th episode of the podcast. Since the beginning, they've become the most recognizable Commander content source and have grown far beyond their humble, audio-only beginnings. They've created two successful gameplay shows, as well as writing for other podcasts. The next milestone belongs to the Titanic Limited Resources, who hit episode 600. Marshall Sutcliffe and LSV, who is the current and longest-lasting co-host among many, have been integral for many players doing even remotely well at their pre-release and FNM draft events. Last but not least, the Commander's Brew podcast released episode 300. Much like Command Zone, they've come from a humble beginning to be one of the most recognizable Commander sources, as well as starting a Commander Play series on their YouTube channel. That's all this edition. We'll see you next time. Same time, new news.